doing what we're doing this weekend can at times perhaps feel very challenging. It can be a feeling of difficulty. And other times, perhaps when you sit down in meditation, there's a feeling of ease, there's a feeling of flow. And just as a little game to start off this this time together, just looking back over these last two days, who generally this morning in the sitting has felt that there's been more of a flow, more of a of a settling? And who perhaps feels that yesterday generally felt a little more and today feels like it's a little harder, a little more challenging, a little more difficult? Yeah. So it's different for all of us. The cycles turn, the spiral turns, and it's different each time. And one of the things over the years that I found really helpful, I forget sometimes, of course, but when I sit in meditation, when I sit down to meditate, I just give a moment of a reflection, just touching why I'm doing it to almost bring a wider picture to the meditation. Because if you like me, I can sometimes sit because I think, oh, well, I've got to sit for an hour today. So there's a big should behind us. And so we sit, but we lose. There's a disconnect from actually why we're doing it. And so I invite you uh, the rest of today, perhaps in the time ahead, to really experiment. Some people have a shrine in front of where they sit, that reminds them, that affirms what it is that brings us to, to, to this practice or whatever our spiritual practice is. What is it that we value that, that informs us? When we begin this spiritual journey, and for some of us the beginning is, is a number of years ago, for some of us it's more recent, we come to spiritual practice also for very different reasons. We may come to spiritual practice because it feels like our experience of life is just not not working well. It feels that perhaps, as it did for me, that my life was a mess. felt like there were relationships that uh, I didn't feel comfortable with and there were ways that I was relating to myself and to others that just did not feel good. And so that was the landscape on on which I began this journey. And invite you just for a moment to reflect back however far it is to the feeling of your particular landscape, the time of commencing, of beginning your journey, what it was that brought you to spiritual practice. Why? I remember for me that first retreat in the Valley of a Thousand Hills in Zululand, South Africa, where I met the man who was to become my, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein. I remember saying to him, oh, you're speaking about all these beautiful reasons to meditate, and it's so inspiring. But I said, you know, I, I feel like I'm not coming for any of those reasons. I'm coming just because, you know, it just feels like my life's a sort of a catastrophe. And he said to me, it doesn't matter. 
<laughs> he said, the important thing is that we begin. The important thing is that we begin. And once we've begun, there comes into motion, an evolution begins of, of the reason why it is that we come to spiritual practice. It's so beautiful. Just as every one of us flowers into our greatest loveliness, that flower is in and of itself individual and perfect. And so this, this reason why we begin, what it is that stirs us, changes too. It may be that we come to retreat and we experience a sense of ourselves that is far vaster than we ever imagined it could be. And so too then our dream, our vision for ourselves, our prayer, our hope becomes vaster and wider. It may be that, that we read something where we just have a glimpse of possibility for ourselves and so our template opens and widens. We feel that we can spread our wings uh, a little more widely. For me, I think what was most impactful about that retreat was, yes, there were beautiful words spoken and I loved at times the silence and hated it at other times and meditation practice was easy and it wasn't easy. The teachings were beautiful, but the thing that struck me most about Joseph Goldstein was that he embodied the teachings. I felt that there was something so utterly trustworthy about the fact that it wasn't just the beautiful words, but that who he was, was the message. And it felt like that opened a lock within my heart, because in recognizing in him what I valued so much, I realized that it was possible for me too. We were both human beings who struggled. And so he gave a permission for the uh, the heart to open. It was so, so lovely. Ruby says, whenever some kindness comes to you, turn that way towards the source of that kindness. Towards the source, the essence of that kindness. And I feel that one of the great blessings in the fruition, in the unfolding, in the flowering of the passion that brings us to spiritual practice is that over time there must be a distillation of the heart, a distillation of that flame, not a diminishing, but actually a, a, a potency that comes until eventually there is a life that is lived with such a clarity of of intention, the sense of what is most important. That life is not lived where we're giving ourselves to what the Taoists call the 10,000 things, the 10,000 circumstances of life, but that there comes a distillation where we know for ourselves in our own particular way, as the essence of that flowering, what it is that we value in life that is most important. And when there is that, that, that slow revelation, there comes an unshakable resolve about what it is in this lifetime that is most important. The many become the one. 
And when the many become the one, and, and for me, the, the, the process has been one of slowly coming to realize that what is most important in this human life for me is the experience of love, both inwardly and outwardly, without uh, uh, being circumscribed in any way, without condition, that it's just the living of an experience of love. And I sense that in Joseph, so I know it's possible, you know. And so that was the direction in which the footfalls of my heart began to, to incline. And when that clarity of intention becomes surer and more certain, what begins to happen is that all the choices that we make in life are informed by that. Is this relationship in service to the love that I value so much? And if it is, then it's a no-brainer. Of course, I'm in that relationship. If not, it's not that I turn away, but that I make choices. I maybe step back, just put a little more space around it. Is what I'm about to say in service to love? And if it is, then the words will flow lovingly and easily and appropriately. And if it feels that this is not quite loving in, in any way, either inwardly or outwardly, then the words are not spoken. It becomes so easy. The many become the one. And this is not about becoming myopic and selfish. I feel it's becoming utterly unselfish. This living of our lives in service to the one, whatever that might be for each of us. And so the journey is one of, of revelation, of insight, of, of discovering what is most important for us. It's very difficult to be confused when life is this simple. And so the whole movement is from complexity to simplicity. What, what self-blessing? What self-blessing? And on the other hand, when life is lived with the attention focused primarily outwardly, where we're looking outside of ourselves, uh, then the possibilities are inherently limited. Because wherever it is that, that we are looking outside of ourselves for that sense of meaning, for a sense of purpose and intention, it's going to change and it's going to create disturbance, uh, a feeling of perhaps chaos inside of us. It's for each of us to, to understand, to explore. And what is my experience over the years is, is that what serves this, this clarifying of the intention, what serves this awakening of the unshakable resolve of what it is for me in this life that is most important, it is this yearning that Frank has spoken about, that I've spoken about, that brings us together. This yearning for whatever it might be, whether it's the yearning for an experience of, of undying love, of eternal love, of, of a love that is without condition and is not in any way dependent on the circumstances and conditions around us. For others, for the, for the Christian mystics, for, say, St. Francis of Assisi and all those guys, it was a yearning thirsting for the kingdom of God an experience of God in this human life. 
For others, it's a thirst for freedom, for awakening, for enlightenment. We all have our own tapestry, our own template, because we're also individuals, so beautifully individual. That the way it's framed is, of course, an expression of, of our inherent loveliness. Maybe just a thirsting for the experience of that peace that passeth all understanding. And to what keeps this clarity of intention alive and growing and evolving, what clarifies it, I feel, is a life lived in an awareness that includes this yearning, this yearning for what it is that is most valued. Hafiz, the wonderful poet, Sufi poet, was born and grew up and died in a place called Shiraz in Iran, which I've visited a number of times. And it's a dusty, dreadful sort of place, windswept most of the year. Uh, two seasons of the year, though, Shiraz erupts into, into color. It's the city of roses. And so you can fly over Shiraz when the flowers are not in bloom and you think, I don't want to go anywhere near this place. And then you can come flying over the desert and there we, you behold colors beyond imagining. And when you step out of, out of the plane, when Frank was talking about the senses today, the smell and the fragrance of all those roses hit you in ways that are unutterable. And it's out of Shiraz that the most beautiful rose water in the world comes and that perfumes and, and flavors a lot of their cooking. And so it was in Shiraz that Hafiz was born and he grew up in a very poor family. His father was a baker. And Hafiz used to run around and deliver the bread in the morning when it was baked. And one of the houses he delivered the bread to was the house of a very wealthy family. And there was a young woman who lived there who Hafiz was head over heels in love with. And she didn't even see him. You know, they were of such a different class. And he was pining and yearning for this woman so much that he eventually decided he was going to do this practice, this Muslim, Islamic practice of going out into the desert and making a circle in the sand. And every night at sunset he did that. He made the circle, he sat down inside there and he prayed to Allah, to God, for the night. And in the morning when the sun came up, he rushed off to the bakery and delivered the bread. And it's said that if we do this with sincerity and a full heart, with the clarity of intention, uh, then the Archangel Gabriel will come. If our heart is pure in its longing. And on the 40th day, lo and behold, before the sun came up, the Archangel Gabriel appeared before Hafiz. And in all, of course, its heavenly uh, glory, and Hafiz was so blown away by the beauty and the experience of Gabriel that he forgot all about the woman. And when Gabriel said, what is it that you want, my child? He said, I want to know God. I want to know God. And in that moment, his journey inclined towards God. And it was the beginning of his particular journey. There was such a clearness in now he forgot all about the young woman and began uh, writing poetry that sets Shiraz on fire. The value of being clear what is most important. So this morning I'd like to talk about the birthing for each of us 
uh, of this clarity of intention about the nurturing and the nourishing, even the bowing to the yearning that is within in all of us. It's a kind of desire, definitely, as Frank said yesterday. And I've always considered it a desire that leads to the end of desire. So it takes us to the end, and then when we know God, the beloved, whatever it is, then there's no longer a yearning because it is a lived experience. So it's the desire that takes us to the end of desire. That's how critical it is. So for those of you who are new to the teachings of the Buddha, there's a practice that I love a lot. It's a ritual that we did on that first retreat in South Africa of taking refuge. And it's sort of like the heartbeat uh, of the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, just in a nutshell, it's taking refuge, first of all, in the Buddha. And the Buddha, uh, in its most literal sense, is taking refuge in this fellow who lived two and a half thousand years ago, and in the extraordinary life and experience of awakening that happened for him. Taking refuge in the Dharma is, in this most literal form, taking refuge in uh, the teachings of the Buddha as they've been preserved and as they are available to us today. Taking refuge in the Sangha is taking refuge in the community most literal form, it's taking refuge in the women and men who practice the way of the Buddha. And for many of us, the refuge also is an evolution that flowers, that unfolds. And so for me, it's always felt like taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in the possibility of freedom. He awakened, it's possible for all of us. Taking refuge in the Dharma in, is more these days about taking refuge in the truth, wherever the fragrance of truth joins me, whether it's the sound of the frog plopping in the pond or the, or the Sufi poets, wherever it is, the shit there next to the pond. Just taking refuge in what is as it is right here, right now, the essence of meditation. And taking refuge in the Sangha, in the community, for me these days is more about, as it is for many people, taking refuge in this miracle of interconnected life on earth. Not even only human beings, but all of life. Lived with reverence as much for one another as for the sounds and for, for the soil, for the aina, for the ground, for the forests, for the whales, for the air. Taking refuge in the Sangha. And when Frank and I were talking the other night about this weekend and, and discussing and talking, he told me something I never heard before, which really touched me. Paul Reps, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, a Zen author and teacher, wrote the book Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. He said, perhaps the most appropriate uh, telling of these refuges today is, there is home there's the Buddha. And then there's a way home, the Dharma. And that there are those who are on their way home, who are longing for home, the Sangha. I really love that. Isn't that beautiful? There's home, there's a way home, and there are those who are longing and on their way home. So, so beautiful. And the Sufis who 
loved so much and who have, I think, been my greatest friends in befriending this longing, they talk about living with the homesickness of the heart. Really living with the homesickness of the heart. This yearning for home. Hafiz, and I'm going to quote a lot of the stuff that has been so comforting for me over the years today. So I'm going to have some fun. I hope this is fun for you too. Hafiz says, I reign because your meadows call for God. He says, I weave light into words so that when your mind holds them, your eyes will relinquish their sadness. Turn bright and a little brighter, giving to us the way a candle does to the dark. He says, I have wrapped my laughter like a birthday gift and left it beside your bed. I've planted the wisdom in my heart next to every signpost in the sky. He says, I speak to you because every cell in your body is reaching out, is yearning for God. And so, of course, it's important just to reflect together on what is it that serves this yearning? This is an individual exploration. I might give you some of the ways I've been humbled on this journey, and I will offer those. Not as a prescription, of course not, because we're all flowering in our own particular way. We're all finding our own way to God. But what is it that, that serves it, and what is it that inhibits this, this yearning? And I feel that probably the thing that inhibits it most is our unwillingness to approach within ourselves what is not approached, what is not being approached. Carl Jung says that on the threshold of the divine is the shadow. And he says our willingness to grapple with the shadow, with the difficult emotions, really determines whether, whether we cross the, the threshold. And so, the, you know, when we put our hands up at the beginning of the talk, you know, for who was it difficult yesterday, who is it difficult today, it might be that for those of us that today is difficult, actually, there's so much possibility, you know. Can the difficult be welcomed in that kind of way? And it seems really clear that what it is that is bypassed in our life, what it is, as Frank said in the instructions this morning, which is so beautiful and stirring, what it is that we split off from really circumscribes our yearning, circumscribes the fruition of what we yearn for. We only have to look out at the landscape, the spiritual landscape of the world today to see evidence of it. We look, say, at, at the landscape of Catholicism and all these probably very well-intentioned men but who behaved in such inappropriate ways with the sexual abuse of, of children. And one, one can only uh, imagine the kind of splitting off that must have happened in the collective human heart there, so that they on the one hand can be instruments of God and at the other hand can behave in ways that are so sad, so inappropriate, so destructive, 
But we don't have to look to Catholicism and, and point a finger because even in this tradition, in the Dharma tradition, there have been many, many instances of teachers who've obviously had had significant experiences of awakening, who've written the most beautiful books and delivered the most incredible teachings, who at the same time also have been capable of some of the most inappropriate, hurtful and painful behavior that has not only devastated the lives around them, but devastated their own hearts. And so it feels particularly important that our vision of practice and our living of the practice be one that is inclusive of everything, where nothing is sidestepped. And I feel that the extent to which our practice is split off, the extent to which areas of our life are bypassed, is the extent to which our wings are clipped. It's the extent to which this yearning is circumscribed. We remain earthbound and the possibilities for us are not universal and are not without limit. And so at the heart of this is what Star said yesterday. Is the, the heart of this is the birthing within each of us of the capacity to receive each moment just the way it is. Frank spoke so beautifully of that yesterday. Of receiving life with a yes. Not a yes that is condoning inappropriate behavior. Not a yes that's saying it's fine what those priests did or what those Dharma teachers, some of them have done, or yes that the forests are being uh, torn down to prevent forest fires. It's not a yes to that it's okay to commit preventive war. It's a yes to that agonizing acknowledgement that we as a species have got to the point where children are being abused. It's a fact. Where preemptive war is waged, it's a fact, yes. That there's a capacity to say yes to, to the chopping down of forests, the melting of ice caps, the, the holes in the ozone. It's a yes so that we, uh, with the yes comes an affirmation that I am willing to feel the agony of this acknowledgement. And out of that felt experience of, of the reality of this moment in time comes a, a response that is so much, so much more trustworthy than the knee-jerk way in which so much of life is being, being lived. And this is the essence of forgiveness. Forgiveness too. And this afternoon we'll be playing a video and this beautiful video. This woman will talk about her experience of forgiveness. Just just tore my heart apart. It was so beautiful. Forgiveness is not never about saying yes, it's okay. But forgiveness is about saying yes, yes, this happened, being willing to feel the consequences of it, being willing to forgive when forgiveness ripens in its own way. But just having a heart that's open, open both to the pain within ourselves and the pain perhaps outside of us too. Forgiveness delivers us from the nightmare of history. It delivers us from the memories that can torment us, but it requires this willingness to come to the threshold of the divine and approach what has not been approached. And so we become more malleable in circumstances of difficulty, like in the sittings that you know, may be felt easier than the other ones, to be more malleable, to say, yes, okay, this is what's happening. Things 
are as they are, how could they be different? Just being willing to bring ourselves to the moment as it is, and then we respond. And another way that I feel the this yearning, this this clarity of intention is not served is by this heartfelt human response that we all have in times that are challenging, in times when, say, the yearning is so great that we look outside of ourselves for the solution. And so it's almost like there are these holes that we try to fill, and so we reach out as a species impulsively. We want to fill that hole with meaning. So, so it it might be relationships, it might be food, it might be our efforts to rearrange the circumstances of our lives to make them more comfortable, or the players in our lives, so that we're not in so much pain. And so we have this desperate attempt to move outside of ourselves, to to fill to fill this hole, this this agony within us. And when that whole is the yearning for God, of course it cannot be filled. And so if we can can interrupt the impulse to go outwardly for a satisfaction that cannot be found there, then I feel like we're keeping this fire alive. We're keeping the yearning alive with all the limitless possibilities that come with that self self-blessing. And so we don't turn to the world blaming it for everything that feels uncomfortable. We don't so much feel a victim of circumstance. We're willing to take that kind of responsibility where we're willing to feel what is here, what is happening right now. For when we turn outside of ourselves (coughs) impulsively for the solutions, then it's almost like it keeps us involved in the drama and the stories of this world and deprives us of the possibility of entering those landscapes that offer infinite possibility for all of us. That's our birthright. It's not that any of us are special. That's the birthright of all of us. So Christian mystics would say we're all children of God. We're all children of God, without exception. I got a bumper sticker that said, uh, yes, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. (laughs) I haven't got it on my bumper. (laughs) But yes, Jesus loves you, and we're all special. We're all special. And one other way that 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 um, I feel, in my experience, certainly has not served this this deepening sense of what's most important in this yearning, is that I lose sight of 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 the prize. I lose sight of what is most important. In the difficult situation, it's so easy for that to happen. And yet somehow it feels critical that in whatever way is appropriate for all of us, whether it's with imagery that we place around us, with ritual, with with um, a certain uh, time when we connect with nature, but even in the most difficult times to touch what is most valuable within ourselves is so important. This beautiful poem of Hafiz again, who... 
for me has been the greatest comfort in this yearning. He says, he says, um, my piercing eyes, which have searched every world for tenderness and for love, now lock on the royal target, the wild holy one whose beauty illuminates existence. He says, my soul endures such longing. He says, I am pleading in absolute helplessness to hear finally your words of grace. Fly, fly into me. He says, oh, let me near you tonight, beloved. With my heart concealed in my hands, let me near you, and I will place it on your feet forever. Loving our yearning. The way of the warrior, the way of the spiritual warrior. For the Sufis, they see the, the soul as the, the, the feminine, the feminine face of God. If the soul had a voice, it would say, I am longing for you. I am yearning for you. I am waiting for you. And God is the masculine face of the divine. And God says, I love you. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And the whole relationship for the Sufis is about the union of the feminine and the masculine, the beloved and the loved, the soul and God, longing, this homesickness of the heart, this yearning. In 1994, when, actually, when my book was published, rather than the book tour that was planned and all the stuff that's associated with a book coming out, I ended up in hospital. It was just too much. And uh, I was dying. My temperature was 106.7, which is very high. And in the middle of this experience, there's all the life support equipment. They couldn't even move me to the ICU, so they brought it the equipment to me, in the middle of it all, all of a sudden I found myself in a place of complete stillness. There was none of the, of the agitation and the fear before. And it was like I was sitting and I, I was sitting on this, this river of rose-colored petals. I can see it in my mind's eyes clearly in this moment as I did then. And I was surrounded by this velvet blackness. So as you can imagine, it was really beautiful. Everything was black, and there was just this river extending before me. And at the point where the river disappeared, there was this light that was shining back at me. And I was skimming along the surface towards that point. And the closer I got towards that point, the greater the, the light was. And the closer I got to it, the more there was this feeling of homecoming the more there was this feeling of utter familiarity. It was no big deal. It was just coming home. 
And it was like my mind then got really busy. It said, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's like, you haven't suffered all that much, mm-hmm. and you know, you're dying, and it, it, it you know, feels pretty neat. Mm-hmm. And it was like, at that moment, I took a right turn mm-hmm. off the river, through the black, and I was back in the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And the, my temperature had broken, and that was the end of the story. And I tell it, not because, of course, we each have to have a, a rose petal experience, mm-hmm. but because each of us, in our own way, has tastes, has tastes of home. And it feels really important that when there is a taste of what home might be, to really just acknowledge it. It's almost like a moment of celebration. We can so often move on to the next problem instead of just stopping and feeling the blessing. And, you know, I got back into my life, but it felt like for quite a long time, well, I don't know what happened, it was like there was a memory of, of that feeling, a feeling just this love that was utterly without condition, and that it was it was also ordinary. It was so ordinary that it sort of knocked my socks off, that it was just home, you know? And that was the beginning of understanding that with all these practices and all these forms that we do, it's not about cultivating anything or creating anything, as Frank said yesterday. It's a, it's a practice of remembering, of remembering who we are. We forgot, and we're remembering. It's as simple as that. So yes, we, we have these notions that we have to madly cultivate certain states of mind and all that, and it's good to incline to be willing, and we do the practices. But in essence, it's about remembering what's already there. For me, that feels so trustworthy, such a relief. It's not about I have to be with the right so-called teacher or have the right retreat or be in the right space. That ultimately, while all of those are helpful, it's just about remembering who I am, remembering the Gavin flower, you know, the Kathleen flower, the Carol flower, the Richard flower, the Leah flower, just remembering. And when I came to this island six years later, it was another really difficult time for me. And I thought I might be dying, and some people thought so too. I think I'm one of these particularly dense cases where I have to be taken to that edge every so often, you know. So anyway, but I was having trouble with drugs, and the drugs were keeping me alive, but the side effects were just terrible. But I was so touched by this place that something stirred in me, and I decided to stay here. And, and a couple of months into being here, I heard of a Tai Chi teacher that was teaching at the Hilton Waikoloa. And so I was teaching class and I went to the Hilton Waikoloa. And for those of you who know it, there's this big grand staircase there. Do you know the one? And you walk down and at the bottom there's that Buddha there. Well, I'm walking down this staircase, feeling a little shaky actually, and halfway down I looked up and there was this man doing Tai Chi. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was, there was strength, there was such beauty, there was an emanation of, of such love. 
it was there was a feeling of him being utterly um, one in his environment, which included all the tourists and all the paraphernalia of the Hilton. It totally knocked my socks off, and I sat down on the steps and cried. I just cried. It was the most beautiful thing I had seen. But I cried because I now know, and I knew soon afterwards, that I cried because he too opened a door. What I was seeing and what touched me most was a permission to have an even broader sense of myself, that this was possible for me too. So, so beautiful. And so over the the four months of studying Tai Chi with him, it felt like the sense of what was possible for me seemed to unravel more into an experienced limitlessness of what was possible, of an uncircumscribed possibility of what it might mean for me uh, in this human life. And the felt experience of his love day after day as he mentored me into this practice, while of course, I mean, he held the archetype of the divine. I thought he was God and, you know, I was at the feet of God and I loved him with all my heart. But really, it was about loving myself and blessing myself with a possibility that I never even thought could, could, could be a lived experience in this lifetime. And the tears of, that I shed were really tears of gratitude and more deeply tears of self-recognition. Not in an egotistic way, but a glimpse into, as Frank was saying, the essence of who we are. Such loveliness. And how do we bless ourselves with a permission to live that loveliness? And then he told us he was leaving after four months. It was like God was getting on a plane and going to Ashland, Oregon. And it just shook me to the core. And in the time of his departure, he introduced me to this book, The Illuminated Rumi. And he read this. I mean, he, he didn't read it to me. He read it to all of us that were there. But I, I like to think, not because I'm special, <laughs> or more special than anyone else, but it was so helpful. And this is an exchange between Shams which is Rumi's teacher and Rumi. And Rumi is whining in this poem, as I felt I was whining because he was going. And Shams uh, says, no, Rumi says, yesterday at dawn, my friend, who's Shams, yesterday at dawn, my friend said to me, how long will this unconsciousness go on? You fill yourself with the sharp pain of love rather than its fulfillment. I said, but I can't get to you. You are the whole dark night, and I'm just a single candle. My life is upside down because of you. And Sham says, I am your deepest being. Quit talking about wanting me. And then I said, then what is this restlessness? And Sham says, does a drop stay still in the ocean? Move with the entirety and the tiniest particular. Be the moisture in an oyster that helps to form one pearl. 
I am your deepest essence. Such a profound teaching. What we love in others, what inspires us, what touched me in Joseph, what touched me in Tom, was my deepest essence. So beautiful. This yearning, this clarity of intention, what is most important? What self, self-blessing? And there's good news and bad news. You know, we have this sense of what's possible for us and all of us just being here, you know, this weekend, we perhaps have been blessed with a bigger sense of what's possible in different ways, in our own particular ways. And that's beautiful and the agony increases. The yearning increases. It becomes increasingly intolerable to not know God. And that's it. You know, the Hindus talk about the Leela, the dance of life. And part of this beautiful Leela of life, the dance of life, is being willing to feel the intimations or the experience of the beloved or the love or the peace we yearn for, and then to go into the landscapes where they're no longer available. This Leela, this dance, the spiral turns and keeps turning. Rumi spoke quite a bit about this longing too, and he says, one night I was a man was crying. Allah, Allah, his lips grew sweet with the praising, until a cynic said to him, So, he says, I have heard you calling out, but have you ever, ever gotten a response? The man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep. He dreamed he saw the Kadir, the guide of the souls, in a thick green foliage, who said to him, Why did you stop praising? And he said, Because I've never heard anything back. And then this messenger of God said to him, The longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you towards union with your beloved. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. Live this yearning.
And it feels like, it feels so true that in some measure, part of, a significant part of what serves this this longing, this yearning, this clarity of intention, what is most important, is our willingness to come to an ever deeper acknowledgement of the fragility of human life, of coming to the landscape of of dying, of ending, of being willing to populate the inevitable, the inevitability of this human life that we all share. And certainly in my life, as I've said, it's 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 happened from time to time. And uh, a couple of years ago, it happened again, as many of you know. In fact, I was scheduled to teach my first retreat here a couple of years ago and ended up in the ICU in Honolulu. And they wanted to do a medical procedure at the time, and it was critical that they do it. And they also said there's a very good chance it will it will kill you. But if we don't do it, then then uh, you probably will die. And so they d- did this procedure, and it was extremely painful. And it involved um, a tube going up my nose and through my sinuses and heading down into my lungs. And in the course of this journey, which was the most excruciating pain I'd ever had, because they couldn't anesthetize me or even dull the pain, I had to do it right away. It was like, it was like every moment in the meditation practice came forward and was there with me. And there was like this thought that came through my mind that said, your job is easy. Your job is just to be present. These people are holding you in every way you need to be held. All your job is, is to be present. It's like every one of those moments of beginning again and again, because it's the heart of the meditation practice. All those times when it felt there was a futility in what I was doing, that it was just dogged and difficult without meaning, I felt were with me in that moment in the hospital. And so because the pain was so great, there was a kind of way, as Frank said in the instructions yesterday, there was a precision of presence. It was sort of, you know, it was sort of unwavering. It was the only place where it was workable. And as this thing continued its journey through my head, even though the pain was really great, there suddenly was an experience of such love and gratitude to knock my socks off. It was like the whole body was was just filled with this love. It was amazing. And it was like, along with all this difficulty and the fighting for my life and all the tubes and every aperture that I have, it was like there was just this incredible feeling of gratitude and love. And the doctor first was all light, and then the one nurse and the, the, the other nurse. And there, in the most difficult circumstance of my life, was an experience of love that, that felt like it was so familiar. And what was amazing, and why I can tell this story, is that there was nothing personal about it. It wasn't about Gavin being a hero or having some exceptional experience. It was like, for some reason, the curtain went up and there was an experience of what was always there. And it wasn't an experience of what was always there for Gavin. It was an experience of what was always there and is always there for everybody. It was just amazing. And and it was, for me, just another um, deepening sense of what is most important 
you know, not not otherworldly, not about a mountaintop or anything, just utterly ordinary there available, forgetting, remembering. The very, very pain of our separation affirms our our deepest our deepest knowing affirms our deepest knowing of our intimacy with 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 the all in whatever way we frame it and the journey home is a journey not somewhere else but it's a journey home to ourselves to the flowering that is always always available what the alchemists call the prima materia the shadow in the doorway to the divine. All that's required is a willingness to feel all of life in every way possible, doing the best we can, moment to moment. Feel so trustworthy to me. And so what I'd like to do in ending this talk is just share with you a few reflections of what I feel serves the unfolding, certainly what has served me, but you know, these are questions, these are inquiries to take home. Uh, and I think one of them is something that used to happen when I used to go to, to when I was doing long retreats, uh, at one point I would go to my teacher and this great thing would happen and I'd be all excited and I couldn't wait to spill the beans and of course felt very proud of myself, you know. I was a good yogi, I was a special yogi. Maybe even I was his favorite yogi, you know. <laughs> And then I would tell him all of this and he would nod his head and he would say, there's more. No. <laughs> it's like, there's more. And for me that's been such a friend. You know, no matter what happens, there's more. Not getting attached to good experiences. It's like, if you want to join me in this moment, should we just do this little ritual where we throw out everything that's happened on this retreat, and even if you like this whole life, just you want to join me in just tossing it out of the window. Okay, so that here we are, utterly fresh. You bang, crash, boom, there's like a lot of stuff out there, eh? So that we right here, right now, utterly available to the blessings of this moment, undefined by history, we're not dragging the past into the present to be the lens through which life is lived now. We're not imagining what the experience of the beloved is going to be. We're right here, available at the chasm. Nowhere else to go, nowhere else to be. Pregnant with possibility. It's feeling the intimations. Right here, right now. it's precious also to suspend all our disbeliefs about what might be possible. Let's toss out the disbeliefs. Oh, go get rid of those disbeliefs. And just open the landscape. Be willing to know everything. And not have any notion of what's right or wrong, what's true or is what what's not true. There's this wonderful poem of Rumi that he says, you know, this is another thing I found so important, talking about 
the deepest corridors of our hearts is 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 um, I feel like sacred activity and part of of honoring and bowing to the tenderest parts of ourselves, our deepest yearnings, our flowering, is to know how to bring it into the world and to not like when we leave here, it's probably not a good idea to go home and blurt out you know, to to all our friends, oh, we like threw out the past out of the window, you know, think, oh my God, you know, what were they doing there? You know, just really, just just protecting the sacred, just holding it well. Rumi puts it, uh, Hafiz puts it this way, he says, there are, there are different wells within your heart. Some fall with each good rain, others are far too deep for that. In one well, you have just a few precious cups of water. That love is literally something of yourself. It can grow as slow as a diamond if it is lost. Your love should never be offered to the mouth of a stranger, only to someone who has the valor and daring to cut pieces of their soul off with a knife, then weave them into a blanket to protect you. There are different wells within us, some full with each good rain. Others are far, far too deep for that. So to know to which landscapes we can take the deepest places of ourselves, it might be that they're just a few people, and that's fine. Even one person is such a blessing who understands. I've taken a lot of my yearning and agony to the Sufis, you know. It's so lovely, you know, to feel, well, it seems like they may understand me a little, you know. I found that to be so important. And the Buddha's injunction to self-responsibility, I feel, is so important. You know, Joseph read the, the words of the Buddha on that first retreat when he said, believe nothing because you've been told it, or because you imagined it, or because it's traditional, or because your teacher said it, merely out of respect for your teacher. He says, but that way, by thorough examination, you find to be one that leads to good and happiness for all creatures. That way, follow like the moon follows the path of the stars. Just inclining ever more deeply to that degree of self-responsibility, I believe serves this yearning and this crystallizing of a clarity of intention. He said, be an island unto yourself when he was dying. He said, take no one else as your island. Let your refuge be the truth. Let your experience be your refuge. You know, so, so beautiful. I also feel that, that in my experience, allowing the experience of the moment to, to set the way, bringing our, ourselves, I feel, as deeply as possible to the experience of life, moment to moment, I feel is probably the most trustworthy response to whatever it is that is happening. And the living of this life, for me, is indivisible. A, a life lived with awareness, with presence, is really, I think, the the fullest, greatest expression of this love. I don't think there is such a thing as unconscious love. I think unconscious love is an oxymoron. 
So when we bring ourselves to an experience of life, whether as Frank said in the instructions, to what we smell or what we taste, to what we see, to what we feel in the body, what we hear, and all the mental formations as he described them, with awareness, with with as much presence as possible, with the humility to begin again and again, that is the experience of love. That inclines us towards the beloved, that serves the yearning, and that unquestionably serves a a deepening understanding of what is most important. When Christ in the Bible says, He says, anyone who starts to plow and then keeps looking back is of no use for the kingdom of God. It's like this journey is about moment by moment. And if we are focused on the past, we deprive ourselves of enormous possibility. And I feel like one of the fruits of of being clear about what's important is that we keep our hand on the plow moment to moment. We're not so much looking back. And so radical is this imperative of being present-minded that, you know, when Christ said, you know, when his mother said, oh, your mother's here, come and see me, you know, and your sisters are with me, and he sent back a message. He said, I have no mother, I have no father, I have no brothers, I have no sisters. All those that are with me are my mothers, my brothers, my father, my sisters. And it wasn't a heartless thing. He has to have been saying, you know, bring yourself to the moment where, where whoever you with is a beloved. And you love no more or no less those that are with you than those that have gone before. It's a kind of stepping out of history and bringing oneself totally to the moment with love, with love. And then there must be an experience then of coming more, as the Taoists say, into the flow, into an experience of life. Somebody mentioned that yesterday, I think it was Carol, about being more in the flow, just a feeling of a river. The mystics talk about uh, being guided by the Holy Spirit. When I was talking to Joseph, my teacher, about this feeling of how the present moment births a sense of what's appropriate, moment by moment, he said, yeah, the Tibetans call that Guru Rinpoche. That's, you know, a feeling of being held by the divine. He said, we don't have to always be the choreographer, the controller of the circumstances of our life. And this, this intuition, this wisdom of the heart, whatever we might call it, must be one of the great blessings of the path. It's almost like, like Gavin, is, as I've known him, begins to leave the picture significantly. There's almost a kind of surrendering that Frank spoke about yesterday that is so trustworthy. Just a surrendering to moments and allowing the moments to define the, the response. So in closing, I would just like to speak um,
my sense is, is that it must for each of us be an immediate possibility, our birthright, in the remembrance of who we are in the deepest way, to know what it means, as it is said, to live in the world and not of the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.